This is where it becomes unfair for consumers and for patients because really they're not armed with the same amount of training and ability to understand a lot of these scientific studies. Oftentimes they might be able to find one paper that says X, Y, Z, and they're like, look, I found a study. Like even that isn't how science and data collection actually works. So it's frustrating when brands take advantage of that. They do scare people. And and oftentimes I always say, look, if you're hearing this advice, just check to see what they're selling. Are they really sharing it to share it? But if they're very anti whatever product it may be, I always say, just click the link in their bio and see what it is they're trying to sell. Hi, Kirby. Hi, Sarah. Welcome Welcome to to Los Angeles. Welcome, Glamgelinos. We hope you stay a while. (laughs) Cute. That's cute. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In case you missed it, your girl is pregnant again. (laughs) Sarah's pregnant. Baby number two. This is actually kind of a fun story in the summer. It was the summer, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's been that long. It's been I'm six months pregnant. Yes, you are. Wild times. You are very far along. You almost Kylie gendered it, but you did it. But we were on a call together and we were just chatting as two friends do. And I was like, so when are you thinking you're going to have another baby? And Sarah's like, Kirby, I'm seven weeks pregnant. What the hell? How do you know this? Like Matt is like the only other person that knows. And I'm like, shut the front door. It was like, I felt like I couldn't lie to you. Uh, obviously, I was going to tell you were like one of the first people I was going to tell, but it was just it's so early to tell people you're pregnant. You're like right. barely pregnant at seven weeks. So but yet, right. you saw right through the Zoom. I felt a spiritual connection with your fetus and into my uterus, right into the uterus. <laughs> so we get a lot of questions regarding pregnancy, whether or not Sarah's pregnant. I've never been pregnant, so I'm not including myself in that conversation. But when, like, whether Sarah has been pregnant or not, we get questions from people about pregnancy skincare, pregnancy beauty. What are the do's? What are the don'ts? This is by far, I think, the most confusing and frustrating thing that a person can go through. I mean, obviously, if you have acne, that is extremely frustrating. Try to figure out the cause of that. If you have hair loss, Finding the cause of that, also extremely frustrating. Trying to figure out what you can and can't use on your face, your body, your hair, your nails, whatever, when you're pregnant. It's it's beyond like frustrating because it's also like scary. Yes, it's mind numbing because you're like, yeah. am I going to hurt myself or hurt my future child by using the Dr. Dennis Gross alpha beta peels? Right. You're not. Yeah, you're not, by the way. Yeah, or... A lot of our listeners who are trying to get pregnant and can't get pregnant and just feel like at a loss or like just so scared that anything they put on their skin is the reason why they can't get pregnant. So there's just it's so disheartening. It's so disheartening. disheartening. And there's so much misinformation on 
the clock app, on Instagram. Can I just say that mommy bloggers are a big part of this misinformation? I understand. Listen, the business of babies is so, so good. Like these mommy bloggers are making money hand over fist by commodifying their children. And you know what? Do what you got to do. College is expensive. Having a child in general is expensive. So do what you need to do. I'm not judging. But I do judge just the stream of misinformation from people, especially mothers, especially talking about pregnancy, saying things that your skincare is toxic, it's going to hurt your baby, hurt you, hurt your chances of getting pregnant, all of these things. Because what you'll hear in this episode is that pregnancy is such a hard thing to get real data about because you do not want to you cannot test on pregnant people you can't even i don't even think they they test on like pregnant rats like i think like it's just ethically like we said it's not right so you can't do it and it takes months and years of testing on groups of people and you're also only pregnant for a certain amount of time so it's just like it's impossible So that is why Kirby and I decided we would do this episode. We did do an episode the first time I was pregnant with Dr. Joyce Park, which was a great episode. If you want more information about pregnancy skincare after listening to this, go back and listen to that one. But this one, we dive a lot deeper into like the myths, the real do's and don'ts. And honestly, there really aren't that many don'ts. There's not a lot of don'ts and you'll hear. So we don't just have a dermatologist to discuss this. We have an OBGYN. We felt like this was important. Somebody actually suggested this. They said, can you have a derm and have an OB come in and like share their thoughts together? Because, you know, is the information conflicting? And it's not. They're both very much on the same page. We interviewed them separately, which I think is great. But it all aligned that everything they were saying. It all aligned. It was incredible how well it aligned. And I do not have children. I'm not planning on having a kid anytime soon, but I learned so much from this episode myself. Just myths, things that have been passed down from generation to generation that are just like patently false. Totally. We want to preface it by saying like, if you are trying right now or you are pregnant and it's again, like Kirby mentioned, you just feel so vulnerable. And like everything is scary. This episode, we hope, will make you feel more educated, but also just like reassure that everything's okay. You're doing great. You're doing great. The dermatologist we have on today's episode, her name is Dr. Laura Scott. She is a board certified dermatologist. She is a mom of four. She's gorgeous. She's also like an influencer in her own right. Most recently, she served as the associate director of the Skin of Color Division at University of Miami, the dermatology department. She also helped found the skincare brand Mele. She's a board advisor for Versed, Replenix, and Lion Pose. So she's just like such an educated woman and experienced mother. And it was a really, really great conversation. She just like debunked all the myths and, you know, her herself having been pregnant four times from the period of 24 to 34, she is an expert when it comes to like what you should be putting on your skin. So it's a really, really good conversation. And then Dr. Sarah Tugood is the board certified OBGYN obstetrician gynecologist we had. She did her internship and residency at LA County and USC 
Now she practices at Cedar sinai She has over 15 years of experience. She also founded the Female Health Education website with a fellow OBGYN, and it's a website that provides comprehensive information and education about pregnancy and gynecology topics. She just wants to help women, which she helped us today. Yes. And I also just want to be very clear that there are birthing people. There might be some language happening that refers to females at Los Angeles. We believe there are birthing people because not just women can give birth. We wanted to put that out there and share that. But I think y'all are really going to enjoy this episode. I hope that you learn from it. I hope you share it with someone that may need it. And also, you have enough to think about when you're pregnant or trying to get pregnant. Don't feel like your beauty routine is contributing negatively to that. Yes, because I can tell you firsthand, it's hard to feel pretty while you're pregnant. Like everyone's like, oh, you know, the pregnancy glow. Yeah, that's all great. But like, really, your body is changing. And like the one thing that can help sometimes is going to get your nails done, going to get your hair did. So please do all those things. Of course, again, listen to the podcast. Talk to your doctor. Talk to your doctor if you have any questions. And both Dr. Scott and Dr. Tugood say in their interviews, like we will share our perspective and our advice, but like, please speak to your doctor. So without further ado, let's get started with Dr. Laura Scott. Dr. Laura Scott, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so thrilled. This is like a selfish request for me (laughs) because as uh, the listeners know, I'm what, five months pregnant? I'm due in March. You all do the math. We did do a pregnancy skincare episode when I was pregnant with Zoe, but as I was explaining to Dr. Scott, it's been a few years and we've gotten a lot more questions. And so I'm so thrilled to have you on. You are an expert in all things skincare, but also motherhood. You are a mom of four. You have gone through this journey four times. And so I just cannot wait for you to share your expertise and knowledge with us. Thank you so, so much for having me. And I'll say, you know, so often during pregnancy, the questions that we have and the things that we wonder about, we feel like it's selfish to ask these questions or we're bothering other people by asking them because so much of pregnancy just feels like this alone time because oftentimes we are going through it and not everybody else is going through it at the same time, but there are so many women going through it. So you are helping so many other pregnant women, you know, right now and to come by sharing this information. It's not selfish at all. Yeah, thank you. And you know, obviously pregnancy is different every time. It's not the same. I'm sure you could speak to that. <laughs> yes. You know, like questions I had last time differ from the questions I have now and I don't know for you, did you have like very similar pregnancies or did you have different especially in regards to your skin? Yeah, no, great question. And I'll say my skin oftentimes seems to act 
relatively the same each pregnancy. So my oil production ramps up. I'm already an oily, acne-prone kind of person. And so I start breaking out. Obviously, you can't use the same kind of acne products, and we'll talk about that. But my acne becomes one difficult thing to manage. And then later on in the pregnancy, and especially postpartum, I become super dry. So I get these dry patches. My skin needs way more moisture than it ever needed before. And it's a little bit more on the sensitive side too. So it's interesting that there seems to be some consistency, but also my concerns each pregnancy and the way I actually felt each pregnancy changed, you know? So I've been pregnant from my, you know, 24, 25 with my first in medical school on to, you know, 34 being pregnant and even going through a miscarriage and all of those different experiences, there's different concerns each time. It's one thing to be almost, I don't want to say a carefree mid-20s person, but when you feel relatively healthy and things happened really easily, I think we're a little bit more low maintenance in terms of the things that worry us. But if you're a woman who is a little bit older, right, like now we're in our mid-30s and some women are trying to conceive in their 40s and beyond, you have all these concerns, you're having trouble getting pregnant, or maybe you've had a history of miscarriages. And now it goes beyond just the basic no-nos. And now you're like, okay, what are all the what ifs? And you become even more cautious with the skincare products you're using and the things you're exposing yourself to. So it is, it can be a different experience depending on where you are. Yeah. I'm so glad that you said all that. And two, I think like in the 10 year span that you've been pregnant, like there's also been so much more, I think, information and the transparency. And I think that a lot of our listeners included, just people who are beauty lovers are, you know, a lot savvier and smarter. And so they know the questions that they should be asking. So, but ultimately you should always go to a dermatologist to get the right answer instead of going to the school of TikTok, TikTok University. (laughs) And I always say, you know, when I'm sharing on social media or on on avenues like this, you know, I'm a dermatologist, but I'm not your dermatologist, right? So I'm happy to educate. But just like you said, it is great to get that information. But of course, we at least I recognize the privilege that that statement comes with, you know, there's months long wait lists for people to actually get seen. And so it is an honor for me to share information on avenues like this in hopes that it does help somebody who may not have access to a dermatologist. Absolutely. So can you tell us, are your patients primarily women? Are they pregnant? What's the main reason people come in and see you? Yeah. So I I literally just moved to San Diego. So this is my first time like not working. So I'm not set up in clinic yet. But when we moved from Miami, I was the associate director of the Skin of Color division there, which was a really important clinic that we built, especially in Miami and so many big diverse cities around the nation where we just have all skin colors. And especially when it comes to dermatology, right? It's our skin, it's our hair, it's our nails. And a lot of times people want a dermatologist or a provider who looks like them or who understands the things that they're going through, whether that be skin color, whether that that be having a uterus, you know, whatever it may be, a lot of times we want to feel that connection to the person who's taking care of us and who we're entrusting, you know, our information with. And so we created that clinic. And so a lot of my patients came in, skin of color patients, which basically includes anybody with some melanin in their skin, whether it be Asian, Indian, Hispanic, African-American. And a lot of 
issues with discoloration. That's probably the top complaint that people come in with. Now, because of my experience in life and sort of being a mom and sharing this on social media, not being, you know, sort of shy about my life outside of medicine, I've also sort of created this niche of pregnancy dermatology. And so I do have quite a bit of pregnant patients, patients who are trying to conceive, and then patients postpartum. So I see kids as well. I'm a pediatric dermatologist. So it's, it's fun to sort of take care of the whole family. Oftentimes, I'll take care of a woman in her 30s who's trying to get pregnant. We're doing her skin checks if she has a history of skin cancer or whatever it may be. I'm taking care of her cosmetic stuff. And then I'll hold her hand throughout pregnancy. Then I'll see the baby if there's some mild eczema you know, take care of mom again, postpartum and just have that awesome relationship. So that's my ideal thing when I get to see everybody in the family. And I treat men too, which is fun, but I'd say the overwhelming majority are women and a lot of them are moms or trying to become moms. Amazing. Okay. Let's touch on the conversation around taking care of your skin while you're trying to get pregnant. This is something we didn't touch on last time, which I think is such an important conversation and something that, you know, as a woman in her mid thirties, I've had this conversation with a lot of my friends who are in the stages of like, either they're thinking about getting pregnant or trying to get pregnant and are sort of like, you know, taking a step back and looking at their vanity and the skincare products that they're using. So what do you recommend when someone comes in and they're like, I'm trying to get pregnant and I'm just a little bit concerned that maybe the products that I'm using is affecting like my fertility. Just walk us through what that looks like when a patient comes in. Yeah. So, so oftentimes it's a sit down and the first part of that conversation is really getting a feel for where their comfort level is, right? So if they're already sharing, I'm a little bit concerned about what I have on my shelf and I want to make sure I'm being as safe as possible. My job as a dermatologist and as a physician is to not tell people what to do, right? It's to educate them in a way that they can understand and then empower them so that they can make the best decisions for them, you know, for themselves, for their body. And so oftentimes, if there is concern about products, number one, I'll always say, we don't have very good data for any of these things truly affecting fertility. So if it's a person who's not too, too concerned and just wants to know what are the big no-nos, I say, we don't really have to worry about it until we get that positive pregnancy test, right? And then we can start crossing off the retinol and the hydroquinone and things like that. But again, if it's somebody who comes in, they already have a little baseline level of concern and they want to be as safe as possible, then I do give them the info and I say, look, we really don't have a ton of data that there's anything that's a hard, you know, no on fertility. There are some that we know, like formaldehyde, for example. So I will ask them, you know, what kind of chemical straighteners are you getting? What kind of nail products are you using? That's one of those that's pretty clear cut. We've had data since the 80s and 90s that formaldehyde can lead to fertility issues and then miscarriage risk down the line if they do become pregnant. So there are some more clear-cut ones, formaldehyde probably being the top one that comes to mind, where I'm just trying to make sure they're not being exposed to those kinds of things. And then we can get into the more gray zone, where I say, look, there's some data about phthalates. There's some data about some of these plastic particles that you can find pretty much in anything nowadays, unfortunately. And so I'll give them the list of things where look, if you want to be as cautious as possible, then maybe we should start eliminating these things too. But I always just 
give them that other side where, you know, the data is not there yet. So I don't want you to go crazy about this. But again, you have to understand. And I think a lot of physicians aren't always in the position to understand, but you can't sit there and talk to a woman who's been trying to get pregnant for two years or who's had miscarriages and just say, no, none of that stuff matters. That That's not affecting it, right? Like, no, they're reading stuff too. And the numbers, even though they're not as strong as you would like them to be, to be, you know, rock solid data, they're still there. And, you know, oftentimes we think, well, what if I am, when, especially when it comes to pregnancy, you're like, well, what if I am that one person, right? And so it's really just about educating them on the real risks and then letting them make that decision. Totally. That's great. So once a patient becomes pregnant, then what are the no-nos? What are you advising them to step away from and stop using uh, throughout their pregnancy and then possibly while breastfeeding? Yeah. So the biggest ones are retinol or retinoid. And that's one I should have said, actually, I don't have many patients on the oral form of retinoid. That's isotretinoin or Accutane. But that's definitely one that I would stop. You know, if patients are talking about trying to conceive, I'm just thinking of skincare. But any oral acne options, whether it be Accutane, spironolactone, a few oral antibiotics are all ones that we would actually stop while they're trying to get pregnant. I forgot about those, just thinking of the topical skincare. But once they are pregnant, then we're definitely going to stop any of their topical retinol or retinoid products. You'll find that in so many products nowadays because it treats acne, it treats early signs of aging and fine lines, it treats discoloration. It's just one of our gold standard ingredients, right? And so even if it doesn't say retinoid on the front, I always have my patients just turn around on the back, look for retinol, retinol palmitate, whatever form it may be in. And those are the ones that you want to put on the shelf. Other ingredients include things like hydroquinone, which is a skin bleaching agent, and that's not safe to use during pregnancy or breastfeeding. And then arbutin is one that I usually put in there. Not everybody is as strict about arbutin, but arbutin basically gets converted to hydroquinone in your body. So to me, I equate them as the same thing. So hydroquinone and arbutin, and you would find those in skin brightening or skin lightening formulas. So things that are meant to fade dark spots or to treat melasma is where you would find those products. The other two that are like, I'm always, I just sort of give people the information, are salicylic acid and benzoyl peroxide. Both of those most people consider as safe in low concentrations. So if it's like 2%, then it's fine. In office, I do salicylic acid peels, and I won't do those in pregnant patients. Got it. Okay. So let's talk about the common misconceptions or myths around pregnancy skincare as I mentioned earlier, you know, a lot of people are turning to social media, non-dermatologist experts who are speaking about pregnancy skincare and things that you should avoid or things that you should do. And obviously they are not the experts. So what are some of the most common ones that you hear or have seen yourself online and also hear from your patients when they come and they're like, oh my gosh, I just heard that this is like really bad for you or, oh, I heard that this will help my melasma. Can you maybe shed some light on, on what those are? Absolutely. Probably what I see most commonly, and I'd actually love to hear your thoughts, Sarah, but what I see most commonly is actually people just hearing so much in terms of what you can't use, that's an easier statement. The sort of take home becomes, 
I can't use anything. I need to just switch to a gentle cleanser and switch to like a moisturizer and that's it. Like skincare, I'm done taking care of my skin until I get this baby out of me. (laughs) And, you know, I just, I can't use any actives. You know, there's just this overall, and again, I, I get it because it can be confusing, especially when you're hearing so many messages. But that to me is the sad take home that I hear people saying where they just sort of decide that the actives altogether are off the table and there's no way to treat, you know, acne or aging or discoloration during pregnancy. And I even hear it from fellow MDs and and physicians who just, you know, pregnancy is a scary time to take care of patients. I'm one of those who I sort of enjoy taking care of, of those patients. And again, I connect with them at a different level. But for a lot of physicians, it's just a big risk you know, why do they need to take if they're not an OBGYN? And so a lot of even dermatologists just say, you know, nope, just come back to me after pregnancy. We can talk about it then, right? So that's probably the biggest myth, honestly, is that you just, you have to go cold turkey pretty much with your skincare. And that's not true. There certainly are actives and really good formulations. They may not be as potent as what you're used to, especially if you were somebody who needed prescription products ahead of time. But there's absolutely stuff that we can do during pregnancy to help you know, maintain glowing, beautiful skin. Yeah, no, that is absolutely the number one question and concern I get from followers, listeners, friends. It's just that it's such an overwhelming conversation. It's confusing to figure out what you can use, what you can't use, which is why I'm like, okay, we need to do this episode again. But it's so not true. Like you said, can you recommend maybe like what are actives, some ingredients that you can use, or even if you have like specific product recommendations that you yourself liked to use when you were pregnant, what do you tell your patients that's okay to use? So one of my favorite recommendations actually is that they buy travel size products because even throughout your own individual pregnancy, so not only are all pregnancies different, but throughout your actual pregnancy, your skin first trimester may be different than your skin second trimester, may be different than your skin third trimester, and then fourth, you know, sort of postpartum. And so oftentimes I'll tell patients, don't invest in a huge size of anything unless it's something simple like like your cleanser. But when it comes to the actual actives, the trial sizes are better because you may be switching things as your skin changes during pregnancy. And then it depends on what their actual issues are. So if it's somebody who's dealing with discoloration or trying to prevent melasma, which is something that really flares up during pregnancy, then I'm going to have them probably reach for a vitamin C serum that they can use in the morning. They definitely need to be really good with their sunscreen. That's sort of a non-negotiable anytime, but... (laughs) There's no time that's less negotiable than pregnancy. And then we can, of course, have to talk about mineral versus chemical sunscreen, which is another concern a lot of women have. And then in the evening, they can reach for a really gentle alpha hydroxy acid. So some of my favorite ones are like a lactic acid or a mandelic acid. Those are probably my two favorite ones that can help to treat and prevent discoloration. Now, if it's a person who's really struggling with hormonal acne, then we might use more of that low-dose benzoyl peroxide cleanser to treat some of the bacteria on their skin. And at night, I would use something like an azelaic acid, which is another type of acid that not only treats the bacteria that causes acne, but also helps to shrink those, not the pores, but the actual inflammation 
really does a nice job. You can even get it by prescription strength as well. And then if it's just dryness and sensitivity, then obviously we're just reaching for the most sensitive skin-friendly regimen, which means staying away from fragrances, using really nice hydrators and sort of skin barrier repair type ingredients. So you want to look for ceramides. You want to look for nice occlusives like shea butter or petrolatum, which again, that's another one. Oftentimes it's really just getting a feel for the patient or the client's level of how clean do they want to be. And I sort of put that in quotes. I know you can't see me doing the quotes, but, you know, clean doesn't really have a definition, but I like to get a sense of how, quote unquote, clean patients want to keep things. And we go from there. Yeah. So back to this clean conversation, or maybe just your personal preference, I would love to know while you're pregnant, like during your pregnancies, are you gravitating towards these more quote unquote clean beauty brands or just brands that have maybe more natural ingredients? Like what are you inclined to use more? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'd say For me, you know, I'm somebody who likes to go by the data, but also I want to feel comfortable because I'm growing a human inside of me. And if anything goes wrong, I'm going to blame it on me or some decision that I made at some point of this, you know, nine to 10 months of pregnancy, right? And so for me, I'd say the ones I all mentioned as strict no-nos, I obviously avoid. When it comes to the clean side of things, I am not a reach for everything natural is better than something created or sort of made in a lab. And I always remind my patients, you know, poison ivy is natural. Arsenic is natural. There are so many dangerous, irritating, potentially toxic, you know, things that are completely natural. I don't like the greenwashing and the fear mongering that a lot of the clean beauty products push out. And so I try to avoid that. But again, I also want to be as safe as possible. So if there is any data that says maybe this might cause something bad, then I do still avoid it. So for me, you know, what that looks like is oftentimes I put my chemical sunscreen on the shelf. And that's when you're not going to hear all dermatologists. There's sort of two different camps there. But again, the ones who have actually been pregnant tend to lean more towards, you know, I'm going to reach for probably a mineral or physical sunscreen during those times, just because we do have some evidence that a lot of those chemical sunscreens can be endocrine disruptors, right? And so that's probably like where I lie. But when it comes to things like petrolatum, you know, skin barrier products, those are such incredible products. They're so good for your skin. I'm, I'm not the type who's going to be like, no, nope, I'm reaching for my coconut oil instead, which I know is an occlusive and just, you know, going to break me out horribly. So, and I think this is hard. This is where it becomes unfair for consumers and for patients because really they're not armed with the same amount of training and ability to understand a lot of these scientific studies. Oftentimes they might be able to find one paper that says XYZ and they're like, look, I found a study. Like I, even that isn't how science and data collection actually works. So it's frustrating when brands take advantage of that and they do scare people. And, and oftentimes I always say, look, if you're hearing this advice, just check to see what they're selling. Are they really sharing it to share it? And again, it's not to knock people who are selling stuff because I do plenty of brand partnerships for brands that I love, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But if they're very, you know, anti whatever product it may be, I always say, just click the link in their bio and see what it is they're trying to sell. And then you can decide if you want to sort of listen to, to that or not. No, for sure. That's really, really wise. What about makeup 
I mean, I'm sure it applies this, the same sort of thinking applies to makeup products. Is there anything that you advise your patients to stay away from or you yourself have like put on the shelf? Yeah. So makeup is actually not a huge one for me that I, that I become really avoidant of or careful with. And that's only because most makeup, you know, again, people talk about skincare and, and there's incorrect statistics out there that'll say everything that you put on your body gets absorbed in. So if I can't eat it, I'm not putting it on my skin. If that was the case, we would all be dead. Like we wouldn't actually survive. Our skin really does serve as a barrier to keep a majority of things out. So even a lot of the stuff that we put on top of our skin does not get penetrated into our skin. And it doesn't all, even if it gets into our skin, doesn't all go through our placenta or through our breast milk once we're nursing. And so all that to say, there's a certain level of concern when it comes to skincare because some of it does get absorbed. With makeup, a large majority of it is made to just sit on top of your skin, right? Like we don't want our blush actually (laughs) getting absorbed into our skin. Some people will go ahead and they want to avoid talc and things like that. Really what I tell patients is just to avoid anything that might be irritating to you. For me in particular, during pregnancy, I always have a little bit of eczema just at baseline. During pregnancy, my eczema can flare up. And so I know I have to be careful with eyeshadows, right? So it's it's smaller things like that. But I always want to avoid flare-ups of eczema and other conditions because we are a little bit limited in terms of what I can prescribe to fix that if it flares up, right? So I can't use the same steroids or whatever else I may use. I'm a little bit more limited. So oftentimes that's, that's really what it comes down to, but I'm not too, not too crazy about the makeup. Yeah. Okay, great. What about if your patients want facials? Is there anything that you should uh, sort of stay away from? Or obviously, like, whenever anyone goes to get a facial, they should let the esthetician know that they're pregnant. But um, generally speaking, do you say like, go for it or maybe wait? What are your thoughts? Yeah. So the biggest thing is just like you said, communicating with that esthetician that you are pregnant. And then you know, hopefully they will be aware and they should, they're, they're well-trained in what they do. They should be aware of the things not to include, right? Because there are vitamin A sort of retinol and retinol derivatives that are included as part of facials. There are oftentimes higher strength salicylic acid. So there are certain ingredients, the same ones that I listed earlier, that you want to avoid that an esthetician may if she doesn't know you're pregnant, may choose to use during a facial. Otherwise, the actual process of a facial and even things like like extractions are okay to do during pregnancy. I even have some more severe acne patients who continue with their acne facials once a month, and that actually helps them pretty significantly throughout their pregnancy. So in general, it's a safe thing. The only other sort of thing I like to let people be aware of is that Again, because of the high estrogen state we're in during pregnancy, we are at risk of hyperpigmentation. So anything that could potentially be irritating could trigger more hyperpigmentation. And that's why, you know, people usually won't do laser or things like chemical peels during pregnancy because the risk for getting dark marks or some adverse reaction related to that hyperpigmentation is much higher during pregnancy. Perfect. Okay. I want to get to some listener questions. There were a lot, but these were the ones that um, sort of were like the most common. What's a good retinol alternative you can use while pregnant? So some people were like, can I use Bacuchol? What do you recommend? Yeah, great question. And I'm glad you brought up Bacuchol because that one I've sort of forgotten on my own. (laughs) 
of my own will. You know, I love Pacuchiol. Oftentimes it's touted as this plant-based retinol alternative, which is always interesting to me because retinol is a vitamin anyway. But at the end of the day, it's new enough that we just don't have the data to say that it's safe in pregnancy. So to me, I'm always scratching my head when I hear people say that like, oh, this is great. It's not retinol, but it acts like retinol. And again, it's hard. We can't study things during pregnancy. Pregnant women are a protected group of the population. And so oftentimes it's very, very hard to complete any study. Even a simple over-the-counter cosmetic study is very hard to include pregnant patients. And so we don't actually have hard data on pregnant patients other than oftentimes the test of time, right? So we'll say, well, we know they've been using this product for 10 years. It's been around for this long and it's never been linked to any types of bad effects. And with Bakuchel, we just don't have that. So yes, it doesn't look exactly like retinol in terms of its chemical composition, but it still acts like retinol. And so for me, it's it's something I actually choose to continue avoiding. I group it with retinol. With that said, I'd say my favorite is probably mandelic acid. It stimulates collagen production. It helps fight acne. And it helps to fade discoloration. So it sort of does all of the things retinol does in a more mild way. And it's pretty well tolerated, especially, again, because a lot of women during pregnancy become more sensitive or more on the dry end. So it's a nice... That, that for me is probably my favorite swap and what I personally choose to swap with during pregnancy is a mandelic acid serum. Okay, we've mentioned or you have mentioned acne a few times and it is something that I think a lot of pregnant women are just like, they don't know what to do, whether it's, you know, they, they have struggled with acne, you know, previous to getting pregnant and it has continued or it's like all of a sudden popped up and they're like, oh my God, what do I do? I can't use the things that I would have normally chosen. So you mentioned, you know, some of your patients get their regular acne facials, then of course the mandelic acid, but is there anything else that if you have this horrible breakout, like what can we do? Yeah. So the other thing I oftentimes reach for, and again, it's it's figuring out the type of acne. Acne is hard because people always just group it together as acne, but there are different types, right? So if it's a lot of what we call the comedonal acne, then I'm leaning hard into my mandelic acid and maybe they're using a glycolic acid toner once or twice a week, something like that to really clear up all of those smaller sort of bumps and stuff that we can oftentimes get that texture change that we get and people will oftentimes call acne. If it's actually inflammatory acne, so the bigger red pimples that are painful, that's when I will say, let's go ahead and use a benzoyl peroxide wash. Again, I want to keep it below 5%. So I think like CeraVe and Panoxyl make lower strength acne washes that are about 2% benzoyl peroxide. That's my happy, safe spot for that chemical during pregnancy. And I'll have them use that as a cleanser twice a day and even potentially as a mask where they just sort of leave it on. And then using something like either the mandelic acid or azelaic acid, which is a really nice option during pregnancy. And then I always say, with the caveat that sometimes it's hard to see a dermatologist, if you already have a dermatologist, do not feel like their hands are tied and they don't have anything to offer you. Because we do have prescription strength, topical antibiotic wipes that are safe to use during pregnancy, topical antibiotic toners that are safe to use during pregnancy, and then the prescription strength, azelaic acid, and and things like that, that we can still manage the more severe types of inflammatory acne. And then do you have to continue not using those while you're breastfeeding as well? 
Great question. And this is probably one of my most frustrating, speaking of myths, you know, retinol, you can get back to. Quite honestly, and maybe we shouldn't say this one out loud, but quite honestly, the biggest risk of retinol comes from the first trimester. And after that, you know, it just keeps dropping. As that baby's organ systems continue developing, that risk of using it drops and drops lower and lower. Once baby is out of you, there's like zero risk of using retinol, other than the fact that if you're doing like chest to chest or babies laying on your face or something like that, it could potentially irritate their skin. But, you know, I have severe eczema patients in infancy who I'm using a retinoid on them as part of their treatment, right? The retinol itself is not unsafe during breastfeeding. That's one that we get back to using. The only ones that I still shelf are hydroquinone and arbutin, only because those ones we do find not just being absorbed by mom's body, but actually passing through the breast milk. That's what you care about. You know, during pregnancy, you care about, is it absorbed in the body and does it pass the placenta? And so it needs to go through those two things to actually reach baby and affect baby. And during breastfeeding, we care about, is it absorbed in mom's body and does it pass through breast milk? And hydroquinone is one of those that does. And just not a thing for baby. Actually, you reminded me, this is something I wanted to ask you. So a lot of the like warnings, caution or whatever, are around like the first trimester because that's obviously like a very important time where your baby is, like you said, developing all of its parts and organs. As far as like the data that's collected, and I know you mentioned there's not a lot, but does that mostly concern like first trimester? The majority of it does. So it's hard to know exposure times because again, since the studies are not saying, oh, let's sign up these pregnant women and let's give this group this cream and this group is going to, like, that's what we would love to do. We would love to do a, not to say I want to experiment on pregnant people, but that's the way we do studies where we control for all these factors. We make sure, you know, the groups are evenly matched. We make sure we're controlling for all of the other variables that could be going on. And then we say, so is there an effect or is there not an effect? And when it comes to pregnant women, oftentimes it's these survey-based studies that happen after the fact. So, you know, oftentimes you're surveying a woman who's already had her baby and there'll be a questionnaire that says, what products did you use? Or did you smoke? Did you do this? You know, this or that. And they just sort of check the boxes. And so we don't always have that clear data that says, okay, the time that we saw something bad happen was when this person took it during that 12 week of pregnancy, right? It's, we just unfortunately don't have it so clear cut. But oftentimes the conclusions that we do jump to is that first trimester is the most dangerous only because we know that that's when the development is actually happening. And there are actually, I I would love to say there are other things, non-skin care that continue mattering, right? So there's data about intrauterine growth restriction where the baby doesn't grow to the right size, right? So there's developmental abnormalities, which is oftentimes what we're worried about most with our skincare. But there are other things that can actually lead to a smaller sized baby and a less fully developed baby. And those are things that continue on throughout the trimesters. And the biggest one I warn about that's semi-related to skincare is just uh, like hot tubs and soaking in a bathtub because oftentimes those go hand in hand. I'm going to have a relaxing night soaking in the bathtub and then put on my stretch mark belly butter or whatever it may be. But maternal hyperthermia, so increasing that temperature of your body is actually dangerous for the baby. So that's one of those that I warn against, unfortunately, all throughout pregnancy. You mentioned stretch marks. Stretch marks, is there really a way to prevent them or take care of them while you are pregnant? 
Yeah. So this is always a great question. This is one of the top ones we get. And this is one of the most frustrating ones I see in looking at brands and how they market things, because we really don't have a great way to prevent stretch marks. It is largely genetic, largely, largely genetic. It also has to do with the speed at which you gain weight during pregnancy. So we see stretch marks normally during puberty in kids who hit growth spurts. That's a very normal time to see them. And we see them again in women during pregnancy, especially in their third trimester where they start. And and many women know who've been pregnant. It's like, you feel like you're not that large. You're going along. Okay, this is cute. Got a belly. And third trimester, you're just like, oh my gosh, how much bigger can I get? Right now there is some evidence that the act of massaging oil on your belly can help to sort of strengthen the skin and help prevent those actual collagen breaks that happen. Doesn't seem to matter as much what you're massaging with. There have been different studies and oftentimes the group, so this is one that we get to study, which is cool, but the group who just massaged something onto their skin. It didn't matter which oil they used or which butter they were using, but the actual act of massaging like five minutes a night seemed to help prevent stretch marks. And so that's one thing I try to just make time for at night if I'm pregnant is is massaging. It's a nice little thing to do. And we can treat stretch marks. There are no perfect, you know, removal options, but we can significantly reduce the appearance of stretch marks postpartum. And so I'm usually just sort of one having patients and, and clients just take good care of their belly. And it, it feels better too, because you can get itchy and all that. And that's, that's not fun either. So just doing a great job of moisturizing and massaging their belly during pregnancy, and then just reassuring them that we can take care of it if it does end up becoming an issue further down the line. But sometimes it's frustrating because you just see these people who just have perfect bellies and are not very prone to stretch marks and they'll swear that it was this product, which, you know, it's it's not to knock the product. I'm glad you used it. I'm glad you enjoyed using it, but it doesn't mean, you know, it's hard. And that's what we see on TikTok and all over social media is people saying, look at my belly, it's perfect. And, and I'll even see it in the comments. They're not even talking about their belly. They're just showing, you know, whatever their routine is. What are you using for your belly? I don't see one stretch mark. It's not always so directly correlated. Totally. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that there's always a way after <laughs> to help prevent. I'm sure our listeners will be happy to hear that. Can you use a microcurrent device during pregnancy, like your new face, or if you are getting a facial, can you do like microcurrent? And you said obviously no to lasers, but yeah, what are th- your thoughts on microcurrent devices? So my thought, especially the ones that you can use at home, is that they are generally low enough strength that I'd be okay with using it. Now, that is one that I would ask your OB, especially if you're any type of high-risk pregnancy. Again, that current is really just delivered to the face, but obviously it's not something that you want to... Speaking of, I've seen these belly facials. I don't know if you've seen that on TikTok. I just saw it not too long ago where somebody was doing like a full scrub. It was like an esthetician doing a scrub, a peel, and some massaging device on like directly on the belly skin. And they were sort of saying that's how they prevent stretch marks. And so I can see somebody going ahead and doing that microcurrent device on the belly. Like I wouldn't do that. Um, But otherwise, it should be safe, especially the ones that you're using at home. And then if you're at the esthetician's office, really just asking her what her opinion is and asking your OB, depending on your risk factor in pregnancy. But your home use is okay. You don't have to shelf that one. 
you touched on this. Maybe you have some recommendations for the kinds that you like. Mineral sunscreen. What are the ones that you like to use when you're pregnant or ones that, you know, you find that um, you and your dermatologist friends recommend to, to pregnant patients? So that's a great question. And I'd say if you go to the dermatologist's office, probably LTMD is, is the one that gets recommended the most. And it's important to remember, as with all skincare brands, it's a big brand and they have a lot of products. So I oftentimes have people coming in and they're like, oh yeah, I'm using LTMD. I say, well, which one? Oh, I don't know, LTMD. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's like saying I'm using Neutrogena. And so there are chemical and mineral options. So the one that I like from LTMD is called uh, UV Elements. And there's another one that's called UV Restore, which is a little bit more moisturizing. And those are two mineral-only options from L to MD. So those are good ones that I, I myself oftentimes use during pregnancy. One that I really enjoy more recently that I've sort of stolen from my kids <laughs> is by Pipette. I don't know if you know that brand. I love Pipette. Oh my God. I live for that sunscreen. It's my favorite. Yeah. So it's such a good mineral option. And it's, again, like I said, I sort of stole it from my kids because it's the one I usually use for them in the summertime, but it works so nicely on the face. And it really is one, again, for me, it's really important to find options that work for most skin tones, which I know is hard for mineral sunscreens. People want them to be clear and it's just not the way they work. They're truly crushed up minerals. And so they're never going to be completely clear on any skin type, obviously on darker skin types. But that one is the one I've been able to rub in the best. And even in my much, much darker friend colleagues, they've been able to rub in the best and just not irritate the skin or lead to breakouts. So that's probably my other favorite one that you can easily find, you know, at Target or order on Amazon. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. And it's like $7 or something super, super cheap. And it'll last. Yeah, it's a nice one. It's nice to be able to just have one that you can take for the whole family or whatever it may be. And so it's fine to use on the kids, fine to use on babies, fine to use for mom, you know, all, everybody. Yeah, you don't have to worry about it. That's awesome. Okay, Dr. Scott, this has been so wonderful. We actually, now I'm like, okay, well, we have to have you back on to talk. We need to do like a children's baby skin episode because that's another question or a category of questions I get asked a lot. But thank you so much for your time. I learned so much. You made me feel so much better about certain things. Again, I, this was like a selfish ask to have you on, but I'm sure our listeners too have learned a lot. Where can we find you to follow you for more information, like your Instagram website, where can we find you? Yeah, so you can find me at Laura Scott and Co. So that I, I come as a group package, it's the whole family <laughs> at Laura Scott and Co. And that's on Instagram, that's on TikTok, and all, pretty much all the avenues. And then my website is laurascottandco.com. Dr. Too Good, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the pod. We haven't had a gynecologist on before, have we, Kirby? We have. Have we? It was when you were pregnant. <laughs> was it? Was Did we? No, we had a derm. No, you were pregnant and I did a solo episode with my gynecologist. Oh, there we go. Oh, I was literally gone. Okay, yes. yes. Okay, well, I have it. <laughs> she hasn't interviewed a, a gynecologist on this podcast before. You're my first, but... We honestly, it's like a thing we should have yearly because there's just so many questions that we have about our health, especially now that I am pregnant once again. 
And we've just been getting so many questions, obviously, around skincare and beauty as it relates to being pregnant or trying to get pregnant, but also just like general questions about like, if you're starting to think about getting pregnant, hormones, fertility, all that good stuff. So we'll jump right into our first question, which is, first of all, you have been practicing for over 15 years at Cedars, correct? I've been an OBGYN for more than 15 years, but I've been at Cedars for the last three years. Okay. Amazing. So you've seen it all. You've done it all. You've been asked all the questions, I'm sure. Do you know like how many babies you've delivered? Someone asked me this the other day. I don't know. I don't keep track that thoroughly. A few years ago, I analyzed what percentage of babies in Los Angeles I had delivered. And it was like 1%, which I thought was amazing. I thought that seemed like a lot. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. And that was from my training too. Yeah. Then my residency and then being in practice, right? That's that's how you get those numbers. You've seen a lot of people who are thinking about getting pregnant, trying to get pregnant, what do you advise them when they come to see you? Like, should they be getting their hormones checked, their fertility checked? Like, what do you advise? Yeah, the first office visit, which we call a preconception visit. So I think that's a great opportunity for people to come in, establish care with an OBGYN and do you know, basic conversation and health check to make sure that there are no red flags, no outstanding concerns for someone who's going to try to get pregnant soon. So that visit is, you know, mostly a conversation, an exam if it's due or an exam if it's needed, really reviewing past medical history, medications, herbal supplements, anything that's going inside the body that may be bad or good for pregnancy or for a potential pregnancy. And then doing some lab tests and just making sure that testing for anemia and and checking liver and kidney function and even doing some maybe genetic carrier screening if it's recommended. So there's other blood tests that we do at that appointment too. The question about do we check hormones? The answer is it depends. So it depends on someone's age. It depends on their menstrual history and what their periods are looking like, if they seem normal or not so normal. And it depends on if they've been trying to get pregnant or what their fertility plans are. Are they going to try in three months? Or do they not have a partner, but they want to talk about the potential for getting pregnant in the future and what that would look like? So there's no test that predicts whether or not someone can or cannot get pregnant. I wish there was, <laughs> but the fertility tests and the hormonal tests don't give us the information that sometimes people think or want to get from those tests. So we have to explain what they actually do tell us. Interesting. So does this mean like these at-home fertility tests, this is not something that you would recommend to people? It's information. So I think for that, in that regard, sometimes information can be really empowering to people and can help them make life choices. Sometimes it can freak people out. And so if you have the fertility test to see if you can or cannot get pregnant, that's not going to tell you that. And we don't want someone to get a false reassurance or cause some false alarm based on the results of those tests, right? They really need to be interpreted and the information needs to be explained to what is it actually telling us. I have a question regarding birth control. So like before I got pregnant with Zoe, I was like on birth control for, I don't even know how long, just forever it seemed. And I know that I'm sure a lot of you know our listeners who are on birth control thinking about getting pregnant, maybe how long 
do you need to be off of it for a certain amount of time before you really should consider trying? Or is there like a general rule? Should your menstrual cycle be regular when you are trying? All very, very common questions and super important to know, right? This is what people should talk to their gynecologist about. So there's no right or wrong answer here. So if I say something that's slightly different than someone else's OBGYN, it doesn't mean that I'm right or that I'm wrong. It just means a slightly different way of of viewing it. For birth control, people use birth control pills interchangeably with birth control. And birth control, I kind of use as any form of contraception, right? It can be condoms. But if you're talking about hormonal contraception, specifically birth control pills, the patch, the NuvaRing, that's what I'll reference right now. So birth control pills and hormonal contraception does not change long-term fertility outcomes. So you can be on it for 15 years, for 20 years, and it's not going to change your fertility outcomes. However, sometimes contraception, oral contraception, is used to regulate periods or it's used to treat symptoms of abnormal periods. And so that can sometimes disguise an underlying fertility problem or an underlying menstrual problem that will affect fertility. And we just don't know about it because the birth control pills are covering up that symptom. So when we say that a menstrual cycle or a period is considered a vital sign, if you're on some medication, specifically hormonal medication that makes your period regular, then it can't be a vital sign, right? Because we're actually controlling, we're using medications to control it. So for that reason, when people have been on hormonal contraception, I usually recommend that they stop it about three to six months before they think they want to try to get pregnant. And that's to give them that time to get their period back, to start monitoring their period, start monitoring their cycle. So we can tell, yes, you're having periods at regular intervals, the amount of bleeding seems normal, everything's normal, go try to get pregnant. If someone is not having normal periods, if their periods are very erratic, very irregular, excessively heavy or excessively light, then that still gives us a time frame to evaluate, figure out what's going on, if anything else is going on, see if we need to troubleshoot some underlying issue. So then their fertility plans are not delayed. Got it. One of the most common questions we received from our listeners is, is there anything that we should not be doing if we're trying to get pregnant? Like, are there certain activities? Is there exercise? Are there things that maybe in the past it was said, stop doing this and they've kind of been perpetuated, but now we know that these are false things. Like, what are those things that we should be looking out for and what should we just take with a grain of salt? Yeah. So exercise is a good question. And in general, it's recommended and safe to exercise and to continue that exercise through early pregnancy, as long as it's not an exercise where you can fall and injure yourself, like downhill skiing, something like that. The one caveat to that is excessive exercise can sometimes stop a period. It's a more common and very high achieving athletes where they exercise so much and they're so restrictive with their program that their body actually stops ovulating. And so you stop getting your period. If you're not having your period because of excessive exercise, then that's something that should be troubleshot because you can't get pregnant if you're not ovulating. But exercise is great. And it's safe to continue that even in early pregnancy or when you don't know you're pregnant yet, exercise is not going to cause a miscarriage. Of course, eating healthy is important eating nutritious foods, getting most of your supplements and vitamins and minerals from your diet itself. 
and then using a prenatal vitamin to kind of fill in any gaps and fill in any extra things that that might be missing from your diet. A lot of people ask about alcohol and sushi. <laughs> Those are things that people talk about all the time in early pregnancy and pregnancy in general. Alcohol is you know, bad for pregnancy. I do not recommend people drink alcohol if they think that they're pregnant or during pregnancy. A lot of people do this, call it a two-week wait, where from the time of ovulation to the time of a missed period is this two-week period where if you're trying to get pregnant, you might be pregnant, but you don't there's no test to tell if you don't know if you're pregnant yet. And so during that two-week time is a good time not to do anything or, or give yourself any exposures that, that you might be worried about if you actually were pregnant. So going out on a binger is not a good idea if you think that you might be pregnant because if you have that positive pregnancy test, you will freak out about it. People do get very worried about it. That happens accidentally sometimes and people are accidentally pregnant. We should be cautious, but we don't need to be overly precious about, you know, the pregnancy in general and and trying to get pregnant in general. You mentioned earlier about herbal supplements that maybe you should stop taking while you're trying to get pregnant. Can you tell us what those would be? A lot of herbal supplements are not studied in pregnancy. So it's not that they are necessarily dangerous for pregnancy, but we just have no data to support use or not use. You know, a lot of people ask about melatonin in pregnancy. It's a very common medication that people use to try to help them sleep. And there's no data in pregnancy. Do I think that it causes fetal malformations or problems? No, I don't think that. But I have no data to support that. I don't have any medical evidence or literature to actually support that. So when we don't have data in pregnancy, it's kind of don't use it. That's my general feeling or use it with caution, right? It's a risk-benefit ratio that people have to take into consideration. Okay. So for me, sushi is like a very big deal in my life. So like, do we need to be cutting the sushi out? Is it sushi no go? Because I'll listen, but if I can, I will. Fish in general in pregnancy is healthy and recommended. Trying to eat low mercury fish because we don't want those metals in our body and the excessive metals can be harmful to pregnancies, um, specifically mercury. But that's about 12 ounces of low mercury fish average per week. So that's just fish in general. Sushi in particular, there are parasites that can live in raw fish. And that's the reason why people say don't eat raw fish during pregnancy. We know in other countries, people do eat raw fish during pregnancy. A lot of the raw fish in the United States is flash frozen. And the flash freezing process helps get rid of some of those parasites that we are worried about. But most restaurants and most high quality restaurants don't want to say that their fish was flash frozen because it makes it sound like they processed it or that it was frozen and that it's actually not fresh. So I think just being cautious with it. You know, you don't want to eat supermarket sushi or raw fish that's been sitting out, you know, in a container for long periods of time. That all increases the risk. I don't recommend that you continue to eat sushi throughout the pregnancy because of the amount of fish that you should be consuming. It's often more than the 12 ounces if it's common. That's where I stand on sushi. <laughs> but if you were at Nobu last night, like we were, and you were pregnant and had a bunch of sushi, it was probably fine. That's, that's what I would say to a patient. I would say it's probably fine. Yes, right. Shellfish, on the other hand, like oysters, that's something like we should stay away from, correct? 
that would be more risky because that's not flash frozen. Okay. Before we jump into the beauty related questions, if you are trying to get pregnant and you are not, what do you advise your patients? Is there a certain period of time that you should be trying before you start considering other options? It depends on your underlying health status, how old you are and what your periods are like. So someone who, for example, has a history of endometriosis, there's not really a defined period of time that that person you know, needs to try for a pregnancy before they're evaluated and before they have a discussion about how to optimize their natural fertility. For someone who is young, healthy, no medical problems, no prior diagnoses, periods are totally normal, predictable on time. In general, most people will be pregnant after a full year of trying, after 12 months of trying. It's about 85-90% of couples will be pregnant at the end of that time frame. And so if we do an evaluation before that time frame is up, it's probably going to be normal, right? Because there's statistically speaking, there's probably nothing wrong. But you're looking for other red flags in a patient's history, especially their menstrual history or their past medical history, to know whether or not an evaluation would be warranted before that time frame. And specifically right now, the recommendations are for people less than 35 years old that they are given 12 months before an eva- a fertility evaluation takes place. And for people who are 35 years or older, it's six months because age can play an important factor in fertility. You know, I don't think anyone is saying you have to try for exactly that much time. If there's a lot of anxiety, there's just a bunch of additional questions, having a discussion with a doctor about optimizing natural fertility, maybe not doing fertility testing, but how to optimize the natural fertility, how to optimize that process, that can be done at the very beginning. That conversation can be part of the preconception visit. It doesn't have to wait until you're worried about your fertility. So I actually wanted to mention something with that last question. We always kind of like think of ourselves as like the women or the birthing people, right? Like, okay, what am I not doing or what, like, what could be wrong with me? But it also is important to take into consideration the partner, right? Like your partner is also equally as important in this. Totally. But I do feel like a lot of the time it falls on the birthing person to go through all these tests, go through all these things to figure out like what could be going on. Like at one point, should the partner be brought into the fold? And should you really be exploring? Like, what are your personal opinions on that? As OBGYNs, we deal with females. And so that's why my focus is also on the female partner. When people go to fertility experts, you know, the reproductive endocrinology and infertility experts, which is a subspecialty. And those are the experts that do fertility treatments like IVF. At that point, those doctors concentrate on both partners. But it's super important. I, I ask a patient, if they're here for preconception, I ask them about their male partner. And I ask them just in general, health status, age, any big risk factors. One big risk factor besides you know, significant medical problems is the scrotum being exposed to heat on a consistent basis. And so for someone, a male partner who sits in a hot tub for an hour every single day, that might be a risk factor. And if we're talking about optimizing natural fertility, that's something that their partner needs to consider not doing. It's not that that causes infertility, but that's something that can be adjusted to optimize the chances that they will get pregnant. And in general, with fertility issues, the general rule of thumb is a third of the time it's the female partner, a third of the time it's the male partner, and a third of the time it's a combination of both or unexplained. I think part of the issue is that for 
fertility testing itself for male partners, they do a semen analysis. They do one test. <laughs> they do a semen analysis. For female partners, we look at their ovaries. We look at their fallopian tubes. We look at their ovaries. We look at their cervix. We look at their vagina. <laughs> so there, there's so many other components of female anatomy that can contribute to fertility issues that I think that that's why the fertility testing seems and is more focused on the female partner because there's just more tests to do. Okay, moving on to beauty. What are some of the common misconceptions that people have when it comes to pregnancy skincare? You know, I think a lot of people get really freaked out and they're just like, I can't use anything. Like I have to just throw out everything that I'm currently using and just wait the nine months and then start using the things that I loved again. What are your patients coming in? I'm, I don't know if they ask you or if they see a dermatologist, but what are some of these misconceptions? This is like the most common question that like we get when it comes to pregnancy. Nobody knows what to use. Everyone's terrified. And they're like, I spent all this money on this great regimen. I have to start from scratch. What am I doing? So please enlighten every single person listening right now. People do think that they can't use anything during pregnancy. And we know that's not true. We know that there are products that have been shown to be safe in pregnancy. I think the two things to remember are there are some medications and some skin products that are not recommended in pregnancy. And so to be aware of those, and those are specifically retinols and both oral and topical retinols are not recommended for pregnancy. The other thing is that using natural remedies like herbs, essential oils, that is not always a better option because it can cause skin irritation. And a lot of the herbal remedies and natural products, the reason why they work is because they're active, right? And so that means that they can affect your body and they can affect your pregnancy the same way that prescription medications and synthetic medications can. So in terms of skincare and pregnancy, in general, the acids, if you're talking about acne and blemishes, the acids are considered safe. So azelaic acid, salicylic acid, glycolic acid, those are all considered safe products for pregnancy. Some people have heard mixed information about salicylic acid. Salicylic acid is related to aspirin and full dose aspirin use for pain control in pregnancy is not recommended. And so I think that that's the overlap and that's the misconception People just think, oh, well, then salicylic acid is not recommended. You know, first of all, if it's just topical, a very, very small amount gets absorbed into the bloodstream. And so you're not talking about the dose of a full strength aspirin being absorbed into your bloodstream. And the second is that we use baby aspirin in early pregnancy and in pregnancy sometimes for fertility reasons and also to prevent some high blood pressure disorders of pregnancy and other complications of pregnancy. So there's a lot of data that actually supports low dose aspirin and it's safe in use in pregnancy. And so that means even more so that salicylic acid would be safe if that's the concern. If there are skin irritation, if there's open sores on the face, the products are more likely to be systemically absorbed than if there's not any irritation or inflammation on the skin. So for acne in particular or any sores or cuts, the product will get more, slightly more systemically absorbed into the bloodstream than if the skin is not does not have that irritation or inflammation. So that's one thing to remember when we're talking about topical treatments. With retinols in particular, this is the reason why they're not recommended. 
there's a lot of literature that says that Accutane, which is the oral form of retinols, is harmful to pregnancy and it causes fetal malformations. Now, if you're applying retinols to the face, and I just said that not very much is systemically absorbed, then how is that even comparable to Accutane? And there were a few case reports for people who were using topical retinols only, not the oral kind, but topical retinols only, where there were fetal malformations that were similar to those in people using Accutane. And in general, there's not usually a lot of weight given to one or two case reports, but because the fetal malformation was similar to Accutane, it became a concern, it became a worry. So that's the reason why we say no retinols during pregnancy, no, no topical retinols during pregnancy is because of that concern. There are some antibiotics that people use, topical antibiotics like clindamycin or urethromycin, and those antibiotics are considered safe during pregnancy. So those would be considered okay to continue to use. And of course, you're always talking to your own doctor about these issues, and you're always making sure that the medications that you're using are recommended by your doctor. And it's fine to ask, I heard this, is that true or is that not true? Dr. Tugan said on this podcast that I can use salicylic acid, but I read somewhere else I couldn't. Which of those should I do? And you follow the advice of your doctor too. I love that you covered this because I feel like so many women put themselves, they beat themselves up over what they can or can't use or like, perhaps I'm not getting pregnant because I use these products that are not considered quote unquote clean, which we talk a lot about that vernacular online. I'm sure you probably get a lot of patients coming in going, do I need to go to and replace all my makeup and skincare with clean beauty? Do I need to avoid parabens? Do I need to avoid this and that? And it's so disheartening to see a lot of women feel like because of their beauty routine, it has change their chances of getting potentially pregnant. So um, I'm glad you're kind of walking through all of this stuff because I feel like it's just so overwhelming for someone who is either pregnant or trying to, to try to navigate all these things in addition to taking care of their body and the, you know, the life that they're creating. Absolutely. Whenever there's an issue with pregnancy or fertility, people want an answer, right? They want to know, what can I do differently? And what that turns out being, the question ends up being, what am I doing wrong? Like, what am I doing that's causing this? That's not the right answer. And that's not the, that is not the answer most of the time. It's the same thing with pregnancy loss. People look back after having a miscarriage and they go through everything that they did in the previous weeks. And they're like, if I hadn't gone for that walk, if I hadn't gone for that car drive, if I didn't get in a fight with my partner, if I, you know, didn't go to that party, this wouldn't have happened. And none of those things cause miscarriage. You know, it's just an instinct to have to try to find an answer and try to control what we can control when so much of fertility and pregnancy is actually out of our control completely. Going back to like the retinols and the things that you, that have data to support that you should not be using that while you're pregnant. We also spoke to a dermatologist about this and she was saying how pregnant people are like a protected group when it comes to like testing. So like, it's just impossible almost to like even have any sort of data to prove that like these ingredients are, you know, harmful while you're pregnant. Yeah, because who wants to submit their child? It's like a moral, ethical issue. Yeah, exactly. So there is just so much that we don't know. So everyone just tries to like err on the side of caution. But like for the things that we do know, like the retinols, 
how are these tested? And is it just based on like the fact that you said, like it is absorbed by the bloodstream? We know that. So then it's going to pass through the placenta and affect the baby. Like how do they determine that? You're absolutely right. This is for all medications in pregnancy and all exposures with pregnancy. You know, we don't put pregnant people in a group and say, you're going to get this unknown exposure and we don't know if it's going to be fine or not. That's not the way that studies are done, which is great and it's protective, but it also limits so much information that we can get. So a lot of the data is collected either from accidental exposure where people accidentally get pregnant and then they say, oh, I was actually taking this medication or I was doing this early in pregnancy. And then they follow those pregnancies. So it's individual case reports, but it ends up being, you know, sometimes larger volume of people because a lot of people get pregnant accidentally or uh, unexpectedly, or they just, they didn't know that they shouldn't be taking a certain medication and they were taking it before someone told them not to. So that's one way that data is gathered. And then another way that data is gathered, which can be problematic, is you look at families who had babies with specific birth defects or certain problems. And then you take a history of what happened during their pregnancy. What exposures did they have during pregnancy that could have affected this? So an example of this that's been in the news recently is with ADHD. And there's information that says that excessive use of Tylenol, acetaminophen, during pregnancy is a risk factor for having a child to be diagnosed with ADHD. And that's because families with ADHD were asked what their exposures were during pregnancy, and they listed Tylenol more commonly than people who did not have children who were diagnosed with ADHD. And of course, that's problematic, right? Because there's so many issues that come up there is they might be remembering, again, they're blaming themselves, they're blaming what they did, thinking that they had more control over this outcome than what is actually the case. The other question is why, if people were taking excessive amounts of acetaminophen. Why? What was going on that caused them to take so much more pain medication than people who didn't need that pain medication? So was that the actual reason and not the pain medication itself? That's the way that data is collected in pregnancy is accidental exposure and forming these registries to compile this information or retrospective you know, analysis, basically. One thing I remember hearing growing up was like, you can't dye your hair when you're pregnant. Like, don't dye your hair. And obviously, you know, like the hair cuticle is different than like your skin. But what are your thoughts on that? Like, what do you tell people in terms of their hair? That's been pretty much debunked that dyeing your hair during pregnancy is not recommended. Sometimes people still say it's okay after the first trimester. And that's because most of the fetal formation of organs happens in the first trimester. That's not based on real data. (laughs) That's just like a thing that people say just to say, oh, well, once you're out of the first trimester, it's not as dangerous. That's not actually supported by any literature. Using precautions, right? Using safety precautions, using the hair dye as recommended. We all know those people that don't use gloves when they're applying hair dye. Of course, universal precautions for (laughs) using gloves to protect the skin and decrease as much absorption as possible is what would be recommended. But even hairstylists who and hair colorists who are exposed to the fumes and the dye on a consistent basis, they haven't been shown to have increased risk of birth defects compared to just people who are dyeing their hair. And so as long as they're using proper precautions, it's all about the precautions being used. 
Okay, what about nails? Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like nails are kind of in the same boat in terms of exposure. Totally. And like, I mean, obviously we all live in LA. I mean, this is beyond an LA thing, but I do feel like we saw like a lot of the brands in LA that were like 10 free, eight free, whatever that even means free. Um, And those are like the ones that you should be using while you're pregnant. And, you know, we've talked to nail artists and we've talked about this before. And the conclusion, it seems, is the same where it's like exposure to the fumes is probably the most problematic thing. I do feel kind of guilty that that I'm still getting like my nails done, but it is something that like I've talked to my doctor before. I've like, I know that it's probably okay, but what do you say to your patients? Yeah, it's primarily the fumes, staying in a well-ventilated area when you're in a nail salon. Sometimes nail salons are not well-ventilated, right? And you can go in there and people can feel nauseous or a little bit dizzy or a little bit off from breathing in those fumes, when you're in an area where there's a lot of, you know, there's 10 people who are getting their nails done, that's a lot of potential exposure in the air. Oftentimes, if you're somewhere and you're feeling those symptoms, you know, this goes for even for any beauty treatment or even, you know, painting your house or painting the nursery. If you're having symptoms, it's probably a little bit too late. You've been exposed already, right? That's your body's kind of warning sign is this is too much. I'm being exposed one time does not cause a problem with the pregnancy. But if you're in that situation where you're sitting in a nail salon, a specific nail salon, getting your nails done, and you can just feel yourself getting some symptoms from the fumes, you take that as a warning. Like, Don't put yourself in that situation again. No, you did not cause harm to your pregnancy by doing it once, but don't continue to subject yourself to that because you know that it's causing you symptoms. Nail polish applied directly on the nail should not get systemically absorbed, right? It's around the cuticle or the skin exposure and the cuticle treatments and the cutting of the cuticles and then having a little cut there and then putting something on top of that. All of that can increase the exposure. And there's not a lot of data for pregnancy and nail care. But I agree with you, Sarah, that in general, it's probably safe. It's just not well studied. The day that we can figure out how to do this ethically There's going to have to be some kind of like homegrown robot or something. I can't like I don't even know what this would look like. It's just so hard because it's like it's not studied for a reason. It's like you don't want to expose people or their babies to anything that could potentially hurt them in any way. So I'm actually curious, Dr. Toogood, what's the vibe with CBD? Can you pop some CBD? (laughs) Like what's going on there? Or even like topically, there's so many products, right? That like have CBD in it now. And we know that's good for inflammation. So like Kirby said, we get this asked this all the time. Yeah. Again, limited data. The data that we do have with CBD is often combined with marijuana use in general, specifically smoking. And then the information we have about smoking marijuana is often combined with smoking cigarettes. And so it's really hard to get the information that actually makes sense there. This falls under the category of it's probably fine, but there is no data to support safety or not. And because there are other options for use during pregnancy for skin problems or, you know, for joint aches and pains, it's something that I don't generally recommend if someone has been using it. I do not think that it would cause a fetal anomaly or or a problem with the pregnancy, but I don't recommend that as one of my treatment options for people who are looking for, you know, options for those kinds of aches and pains. Is there anything 
in the last like five years that we've learned from like any studies that were able to be done or any literature about beauty and skincare as it relates to pregnancy or anything that's been like really debunked? Yeah. I mean, I think you mentioned this before, the the studies about phthalates and parabens in products. That's something that people are talking more and more about. And it does seem like that they can act as endocrine disruptors in terms of causing fetal anomalies. There's no data that supports that that I know of. But people always talk about, especially phthalates in perfumes and in beauty products, but phthalates are everywhere in the environment, right? The biggest exposure is probably receipts from grocery stores and plastics that we're exposed to on a daily basis. So to say, you know, I'm going to stop using my perfume that I love because it has phthalates in it and think that that is going to stop your phthalate exposure is not true it can minimize it, right? So there's a level there that you have to, just because something doesn't stop all your exposures doesn't mean you don't do it or you, you know, you just say like, oh, well, it doesn't matter anyways. But so much emphasis of that is on our beauty products. And since that's what we're talking about, that's, that's why I'm bringing it up. Totally. There was a documentary that came out called Not So Pretty. I wonder if your patients came to you and asked you about it. It was on HBO Max and it kind of had a movement on TikTok because people were throwing away their beauty products being like, this product has talc in it or like this product has a phthalate in it or whatever. And I wrote a story about it and it was really interesting to hear, like it it was verbatim what you said, like, sure, limiting exposure is important. It can be important to you if you want to go that route, but like, you're probably getting more phthalate exposure from these receipts, from the water bottle you're drinking out of, like the Tupperware you use. There's so many things that um, are probably exposing you more to phthalates than the perfume that you put on to smell good and like have a sensorial experience. So I thought that was really interesting. I'm glad that you touched on that. Thank you so much. Yeah, I had a a patient a few years ago who was not pregnant, but came to me for a preconception visit She wanted an out-of-hospital birth, but the primary reason she wanted that was because she was so worried about the phthalate exposure from the plastic IV that she would get during her hospitalization. You know, while that is an important thought, you know, and and it's nice that people are talking about this. I think it's important that people are talking about it. It also didn't make 100% sense that that was the only exposure that was being minimized when no other lifestyle changes were being contemplated too. Especially like that far in the pregnancy at that point, like you're in the hospital ready to give birth. (laughs) Your baby is like fully formed. Yeah. So interesting. That is wild. Oh, well, this has been so, so wonderful and like just so informative. Thank you so much, Dr. Too Good. Can you tell us where can we find you? You have a blog. Tell us where we can find more information, where we can follow you online. A, a colleague that I've worked with since residency and a close friend of mine, we have a, a health education company called Female Health Education, and it's femalehealtheducation.com. We call it FEMED, just as a short, but the point of FEMED is that we know health information is missing, right? People come, all these questions that you asked today, we've been talking about this for 30 minutes already. And a doctor's office visit 
is 10 minutes, right? And we, we have to do all of the pregnancy care and all the other counseling for pregnancy. There is not enough time in our current healthcare system to answer every single question that patients need to know about. And so that's kind of where this idea for female health education came from, is to provide information from doctors, from doctors who know the questions that people are asking. And our whole careers have been synthesizing vast amounts of information and then explaining it in a way that is hopefully easy to understand and actually applicable to your real life and your day-to-day life and not just theory. Um, so that's the goal of FEMED is to is to provide a resource for that information. So then you can take that information and that knowledge that you learn from us and go to your doctor's visit and have this foundational knowledge to like know what they're talking about, really make the doctor's appointments be more about like what's going on with you and you in particular should be doing not necessarily baseline information that a doctor might not have time or even know that you don't know. So that's my big plug there. <laughs> Amazing. For our glams who are in LA, are you taking new patients? I am taking patients. We have a very busy practice. I don't want people to be discouraged if they call and they and it's a hard time to get an appointment right now, but I am happy. I'm, we have an office in Los Feliz, which is where I also live. And it's a brand new building. It's a brand new office. It's really beautiful and patients are loving it. So that's why I'm seeing patients right now from, uh, out of you know, Cedar Sinai. Can we follow you on Instagram or, or anything like that? Like what's your handle? Yeah, we have a FemEd uh, handle. It's fem.ed. That's where we have a lot of information there. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Too Good. Yeah, so good talking to you. All right, that's it. Thank you everyone for listening. We will be back on Tuesday with the week's most buzzy beauty news. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Spotify so you don't miss any breaking beauty news or product reviews. And if you want to support us, be sure to follow us at Gloss Angeles Pod on all platforms and join our Facebook group. Plus, find every product we recommend on our website, glossangelespod.com, as well as links to the stories and news we report each week. You can follow us, your hosts. I'm Sarah Tan, that's S-A-R-A-T-A-N, on all social platforms. And I'm Kirby Johnson, K-I-R-B-I-E, on all social platforms. Los Angeles was created by us, Kirby Johnson and Sarah Tan. It's part of the ACAST network and licensed by Vice Media Group. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.